The Apostle Paul is writing to and praying for believers who already have some knowledge of God. And his central request is, Oh Lord, I, I pray that these folks who already know you might come to a new and a deeper knowledge of who you really are. Now in the language that Paul was writing, that's ancient Greek, that language contains a number of different words that might be translated as know or to know. Let me give you an example. Uh, here is uh, uh, somebody that I know. I could say, I know this guy. Go ahead, there, I know that guy, all right? You know him too, right? Um, what do you know about him? Just shout out some things you know about him. He's one of the presidents of the United States. What else? Free the slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation. Signed that. What else do you know about him? Was assassinated. Absolutely. Anything else? Gettysburg Address. Absolutely. Anything else? His wife was Mary, Mary Todd Lincoln, yes. He was a lawyer, I heard that. Uh, he was uh, from Illinois. What else do we know about him? President during our Civil War. Uh, you mentioned some of these others. Uh, Honest Abe, that was his nickname, right? Honest Abe, uh, shot in Ford's Theater. On and on we could go. We could just keep naming facts and ideas, and we could say that we know this guy, Abraham Lincoln. Now, I know who he is. I know what he looks like, and so do you. Um, now, I could also say, I know this person. All right, I know this person. I know them. You don't know them. You don't know them. At least not like I know them. This is my beautiful wife, Sue. Now, I know her so well that I know that if I put a giant picture of her up on the wall in front of you this morning, that... I might not be living later this afternoon, all right? So, I know Sue pretty well. Um, this particular verse that we're looking at contains a verb that means to know deeply and personally and intimately. Now, that's an entire different kind of knowledge, isn't it, than knowing facts and figures and stuff. After 33 years of marriage, the knowledge that I have of Sue is deep and it's personal and it's intimate. And you see, that's the kind of knowledge that Paul is praying that the Ephesians, and us by the way, will come to have for the Lord. To know him better. To know him better. In the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, we spent a couple of weeks, uh, three weeks ago, and, uh, two and three weeks ago, we spent a couple of weeks just considering all of the blessings that we possess when we become followers of Christ. Those are listed in, in that first part of chapter one. You might remember that I mentioned that verses three through 14 were one long, we call it a doxology or a song of praise to God. Just praising God for all of the blessings that we receive when we come to follow him. Now that song is followed by this long prayer that they might know God better. So think of it this way. First Paul just puts the truth out and then he prays the truth in. In verse three he says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And so 
the prayer is not, Lord, give us new blessings, because he's just listed a ton of blessings. So not, not Lord, give us new blessings, but, but rather help us experience the truth we already know. Help us know deeper what we already know. Spiritual truth often can become academic and cold and formal. And so Paul is praying, Lord, turn them on to the truth. Lord, they know you. Now make them excited about knowing you. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, we heard Merlene read the text already, this long prayer. So let's just jump in to explore what it means to know Jesus. And the first thing we want to consider is the request, the request to know him better. I mentioned that comes right out of verse 17. Let me read that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That deep, intimate knowledge. Here's a, a more contemporary version translation. Uh, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. So I want to just think about this. We might think of knowing God on three different levels. We'll start with level one. We'll call level one knowing experience. Now, all of us who know the Lord have some experiences that we can use that encourage ourselves, that might help others. These are things like answers to prayer, um, the idea of that we have strength in the midst of hardship, that God has blessed us in various ways. These are experiences that are very personal but they can also be used to encourage others. That's one kind of knowing, level one knowing. Then we're going to move on to level two knowing, and we'll just call that academic knowledge. Now, academic knowledge about God comes from going to church, listening to sermons, reading the Bible, maybe reading some other uh, biblical books that help us, studying. For some, even going to, to college or to a seminary to learn at a deeper academic level. Now, many people consider this kind of knowledge a higher level of spiritual life. But while knowing about God and his plans and his purposes is very important, it's also vital for us to understand that knowing about God is not enough. We could become experts on Abraham Lincoln, but we will never know him. Is that right? Academic knowledge only takes us so far. It's vital for us to understand that knowledge is not the goal or the end of knowing God. We want to get to what we're going to call level three knowledge. And we'll call level three knowledge wisdom. You see that Paul prays for that there in verse 17. He says, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. This is the kind, uh, 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 this level comes only through, through prayer, by spending time with God, by allowing his spirit deeply into our lives. This is when we begin to see things more through God's eyes and less through our eyes. 
As we live our life, we begin to, to experience things the way God might experience things. We might have the emotions that God might have. Rather than being self-centered, we become God-centered, looking out in compassion at the world because that's the God that we really know. That is the God that we want to know on that deeper level. That's where true peace really comes from. If you're really looking for that place of peace, it comes at this level three knowledge of wisdom. It's not measurable. It's not really even explainable very well. Nor, it's, it's, in some ways, it's not even understandable. When the Apostle Peter was writing about this, he calls this the peace that surpasses all understanding. In other words, it's kind of mind-blowing, all right? God does stuff in our life. We come to know God in a way that we just can't fully understand or even explain to others. This is level three knowledge. By the way, levels one and two are not prerequisites. I don't want you to see it like this. This is not some exercise that we're going to complete. Okay, got to level one. Now I'm going to get to level two. Check that box off. Now I'm moving on to the next thing. No, 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 no. It's just part of the life of knowing Christ. As we progress, as we move through life, our prayers become less gimme God and more about help me see what you want me to learn through this experience, this crisis, this hardship, whatever it might be. We become understanding that God wants to deepen his relationship with us and say, Lord, help me to know that. God, you understand this, that God invites us to seek his face. He wants us to know him better. It's not as if our Heavenly Father is hiding himself from us, but we can only have this kind of deeper knowledge, this close relationship with him, if we seek it. And you see, that is the burden of Paul's prayer. That we might pursue this level three relationship with God that doesn't depend on knowledge or experience alone, but it comes through wisdom as we seek the Lord's plans and purposes for our life. Any of us, any one of us can have that sort of relationship with God if we want it. And if we're willing to pay the price to have it. But it starts with making the request. And so Paul prays for the Ephesians and he prays for us and we might pray for ourselves and for one another as well that we might know him better. Know him better. That, next we then consider number two, the means. We've made a request. What, are, what is the means or the way of this request? In the first part of verse 18, Paul prays, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. We sang that song a few minutes ago. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. What in the world does that mean? This is the heart of the prayer. By the way, it's also the only time that the phrase, the eyes of your heart, appears in the New Testament. Now, if something only occurs once, often that means that it's a significant truth that demands our attention. The heart has eyes. Did you know that? 
When Paul now is speaking of your heart, he's not talking about this vessel, this organ in our chest that pumps blood through our body. As important as that is, that's not what Paul's talking about. The term heart refers to what, what we might say is the real you. The real you, the place inside where the decisions of life are made. The heart is the place where we decide what values we will live by, what direction we will go, and how we will live our life each day. Every important decision we make is made by the heart. And when I say that, I'm not talking about making decisions in an emotional way. Often we, we, we talk about in our Western kind of mindset, the heart is emotional. And so follow your heart, people will say. Follow your heart, whatever feels good. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the heart as God has intended it for us. To guide us as he brings light into our, our life. And, and so our heart has eyes. And notice here that the eyes can be open. Open the heart, eyes of my heart, Lord. And, and what's the opposite of open? Closed. So if we're praying for something to open, that means that sometimes it must be closed. When the eyes of our heart are closed to the light of God, what happens? Well, we stumble blindly through life, making one dumb choice after another. You know anybody like that? I do. Sometimes we fall into sinful patterns. We break God's laws. We end up driving into the ditch. We make the same mistakes over and over again. Or we enter one dead-end relationship after another or whatever it might be. Why do we do that? We sometimes even think that to ourselves. Why did I do that? Why do I keep doing this? I'll tell you why. It's because the eyes of our heart are shut. And then we lack moral vision. The eyes of our heart are shut. The light of God is shut out of our life. And that means that we can see and be blind at the same time. Think about that for a minute. You can see and be blind at the same time. That is, we might have 20-20 vision with our physical eyes, but the eyes of our heart... The eyes of our heart can be blind to the light of God. And there are lots and lots of people in this world that live that way. Physically they can see, but spiritually they are totally blind. And friends, sadly, some Christians even live like this. They know God, that first level knowing God, that academic knowledge, but their hearts... The eyes of their hearts are so filled with the things of life that they become blind to the truth and the light of God. Let me illustrate. Let's say you have a, a Christian young man. He's raised in a Christian home. He's been going to church all of his life, Sunday school, vacation Bible school, children's ministry, the youth group. Then he goes off to college. And at last, he's on his own. What happens? He meets a nice girl. They start dating. What happens next? They start living together. They start sleeping together. They start going in directions that are far away from God's plan and purpose for their life. And then when his parents hear about it, they're furious and they're sad and they're worried and they're upset and they wonder what to do. And they argue with the son and they plead and cajole and threaten and quote scripture. 
all to no avail. What's the problem? What's the problem? It is precisely this. The eyes of his heart are shut to the truth of God. And until those eyes are opened, all the yelling, all the cajoling, all the lecturing in the world won't make much of a difference. But it's at this point that we encounter a most liberating truth from our text. Paul prayed for the Ephesians that the eyes of their hearts might be opened. One translation puts it this way, that the eyes of your heart might be flooded with light. I love that. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with light. Opening blind eyes is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. He alone does it. He alone does it. But he can do it. And that is the source of our hope. This, friends, is why we pray. We pray for our children and our grandchildren and our family members and our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones who today are far from God. And as our kids or our grandkids grow older, we discover over and over again how little control we really have over them. We can't compel their obedience we can't compel their hearts. But what we can do is pray. We can cry out to God and say, Oh Lord, open the eyes of their heart. Help them to see the light of truth. You see, ultimately there are only two ways of looking at things, of seeing things. Either the self is at the center of, Christ, uh, of life and Christ is kind of out here on the periphery. Or Christ is at the center of our life and the world is out here around the edges. Friends, so many Christians have bought into the notion that this world is what really matters. And so guess what happens? Christ gets pushed to the periphery. He's around. We know about him. But he's not central to thinking and choices and actions and decisions. But when Christ, when Christ comes to the center, we see this world for what it really is. Something at the edges. Let me give you an example. I, I've been going to a lot of high school football games recently. We go to watch our grandson play. He's in high school. And here's my observation as I sit there in the stands. Here's my observation. You're either on the bench or you're in the game. You're either on the bench or you're in the game. And so as, as I watch, I see some of the players sitting on the bench. And they're goofing off. They're laughing. They're trading jokes. Even while the game is going on. And I'm up in the stands thinking, what, what are they doing down there? Others, though, even though they're not out on the field physically, they're on the sidelines. And they are engaged. They're cheering their team on. They're shouting encouragement. They're celebrating or they're commiserating when something goes wrong. You see, friends, we need to be in the game. We need to be in the game, whether we're on the sidelines or on the field. Even while we're injured, we can still be in the game serving the Lord. 
that's where he wants us to be. You see, once you get into the game, once Christ becomes the center of your life, no one's going to have to tell you not to goof around on the bench. No one will have to tell you, don't cheat on your taxes. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't get drunk on the weekends. Don't hold up on to bitterness from the past. No one has to tell you those things. You won't do those things. Why? Because Christ is at the center. You are in the game. The eyes of your heart are open. The light of God's truth is flooding in. And friends, you'll never look at anything the same way again. You see, sometimes we, wonder, we, we worry so much about the symptoms without dealing with the root issues of life. As followers of Christ, we should say, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Make that a cry. Because when that happens, that's when radical change really takes place. We'll grab our helmets and we'll put them on and we will get into the ball game for the Lord. We'll get into the huddle and we'll say, you call the play, Lord. I'm ready to do whatever you say. So we have the request. We have the means, the light flooding into our eyes. So finally we come to the result. What is the result of all of this? As Paul prays, he has three things specifically in mind that will result from the eyes of our heart being opened. I want to share those with you. First, he prays that they will know all that God has given. All that God has given. This comes from the, the, the middle of verse 18. He says, I pray that to, the, the, to hope to which he has called you. You'll come to understand the hope to which you, he has called you. You see, this is looking back. He's looking back to conversion. To understanding and remembering the hope that came about when we chose Jesus. When we stepped into the light the first time. Remember all those blessings we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Verses 3 through 14. There's just a, a few. Here's just a few of, of the elements of that hope. The hope to which he's called you, you're chosen in Christ. You're adopted. You're redeemed through his blood. You've received the forgiveness of sins. God's very plan has been made known to you. And by the way, you're chosen again, Paul says. And you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You might remember that that's uh, the tattoo, right? The mark, the brand, sealed by the Holy Spirit, the down payment. The guarantee of more to come, who we belong to, all that God has given, all of that is ours. And that brings great hope that we might know that hope on that deep level. It is the permanent possession of every child of God. We are rich, we are blessed beyond measure. Paul prays that we might understand how rich we already are. We already have everything we need. All that God has given. What else does Paul want to know? He prays for this result. These results, all that God has given and secondly, all that God has promised. 
So not only are, are we looking back, but in, in the second part of our third part of verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What's this about? This is about looking ahead. Looking ahead to the end of time when we will see the Lord face to face and receive fully everything that he's promised. It is beyond our capacity even to, to describe the glory of that moment. You know, sometimes we wonder what heaven will be like. Likely it will be everything, everything we dreamed of and nothing like we imagined. Going to heaven is not so much going to a place as it is going to a person. You know, if I've been gone on a trip, I might say to someone, I can't wait to get home again. But I, I'm not talking about the little bricks, the carpet. You know, if it's not as if I, when I come home, I say, well, hello, curtains. So good to see you. Hello, kitchen table. I miss those chairs. You might think something's a little off if I started talking like that. No, home is precious because of the people who live there. When I say I can't wait to get home, I mean that I can't wait to see Sue again. You see, it's the same thing with heaven. The glory of heaven is not the streets of gold or the gates of pearl or even the river of life or the angels of God. The glory of heaven is Jesus. Heaven is wherever Jesus is. And when we finally get to see Jesus face to face, we will be home for all eternity. All that he has given. All that he has promised. And then third, all that God has provided. All that God has provided from verse 19. Paul prays that they might come to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believes. The immeasurable greatness. In, in this verse, in verse 19, there are four different Greek words for power, all used in this verse. He, Paul uses the word from which we get dynamite. He wants us to understand the dynamite power, the explosive power of God. Then he uses the, the word we get the English word energy from. The energy of God. He uses a, a word that means muscle strength and another that means courageous power. You see, God's power is sufficient for all we need. He provides everything we need. You know, so often we are gripped by fear. What's going to happen? Inadequacy. I don't know what to do. Insecurity. Oh, no. A feeling that we are powerless to change things. Guess what? That's true. You are powerless to change things. The good news is God's power is wrapped up in a person, Jesus Christ. This is the power that exploded in Christ when he rose from the dead. And if you know him, you know what I mean, know him, right? If you know him, you have the greatest power source in the universe living within you. Think about that. Last year, I went to visit a, a dear lady in our church family that was dying from cancer. Ruth Howell. Many of you remember Ruth. I remember that, that very last visit I had with her. And it wasn't the first time she said this. 
And so this phrase resonated with me. But as I was trying to be pastorly and encourage her and share some scripture about God's promises, you know what I found out? She encouraged me. She encouraged me, and I will never forget those words. Rob, she said, I am convinced that the best is yet to come. I'm convinced that the best is yet to come. Even as cancer had grabbed hold of her body, she was holding on to Jesus. Even as cancer moved through her blood and, and through her systems, she understood all that God has provided. She understood that. Oh my goodness. Friends, why should we worry? Why should we fear? Why should we doubt the best is yet to come. Our God has given us all we need. Oh, that we might know. The hope of our calling. The riches of our inheritance and the amazing power of God. It's all ours. And it's all wrapped up in one person, Jesus Christ. Friends, pray. Pray that you might know him better. Pray, pray that our eyes might be open to see things clearly. Pray, pray that you might love him and serve him and make him the center of your life. What a magnificent encouragement this passage is. Pray, pray, and keep on praying. Pray for one another. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands. Pray for your neighbors and family members that don't know Jesus. Pray for your church leaders. Pray for this community as together we live out our motto. There it is on the wall. To what? Know him. Not know about him, but to know him. To love him. Remember that love. That love is an all-encompassing love. A sacrificial love. And when we know him, and when we love him, we can't help but what? Share him. Share him. And so pray. Pray that you might come to know him on a deeper level. Let's pray together.